Thank you for tuning in, connecting the diocese from the Diocese of La Crosse, Wisconsin. My name is Jack Sosha, your host. Before we get on with the rest of the show, a few words first for this first weekend of Lent from Bishop William P. Callahan, the Bishop of the Diocese of La Crosse. O God, who have called us to this season of Lent, in which your only begotten Son entrusted to the Church the banquet of his love, fill us with the fullness of life and the desire for heavenly joy. Hi everybody, Bishop Callahan here to take a few moments as we enter into the season of Lent. Lent is a time when the church invites us into authentic repentance and renewal. We are given 40 days to remind ourselves of how Jesus entered into his public ministry, the care he had for his people, the cruelty he endured, and the promise he made at the Last Supper to be with us always. We can only marvel at the unfolding of the historical events and find consolation in the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies. This year, pay particular attention to the actions carried out by Jesus on the night before he was crucified. He took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And likewise, he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. These actions, so simple yet so profound, shape our entire Catholic faith. It is the Eucharist that gives life. It is the Eucharist that gives hope and it is the Eucharist that is pivotal to your spiritual journey. I encourage you to make your Lenten journey in the presence of our Lord in the Eucharist. Open your heart and let him speak to you. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you this Lenten season is that you may come to a deeper love of Christ in the Eucharist. He is really present and wants to feed your soul with his very body. May you be transformed by his grace and keep alive in your desire for heaven. Blessed Lent to you, and I'll see you at Sunday Mass. Thank you, Bishop Callahan. I'm sitting here in my home studio today, waiting for the weather to clear up. We are at the tail end of FFA Week, Future Farmers of America Week. It ended on the 25th. And I had to think about this for a little bit because I'm a city kid. I was raised literally able to see the lights of the Empire State Building out my back window across the river. So for me, 
farming and farmers in general was really an abstraction. Fortunately for me, I married into a dairy farm family, a lovely family, wonderful wife and a great bunch of in-laws, and also had the double good fortune of getting a radio job in Marshfield, Wisconsin, not more than a matter of a few miles from where their dairy farm was located. So I got to see up front and personal what the life was like on the farm. I saw a lot of hard work, a lot of responsibility for your actions, a lot of great family values, and also the tension that goes on when you plant your crop and you hope that things go well before it is time to harvest them and that something strange and awful and weather-wise doesn't happen. We are truly blessed in this country that in most cases, except perhaps during the pandemic when the chain of distribution got a little bit wonky, that at any time of the year you can go into a grocery store and find plenty of food on the shelves. And it doesn't just happen by accident. People grow this food. Families work their whole lives to produce things. It's a heritage that we really do cherish. And I want to congratulate all the future farmers of America for keeping that alive. Future Farmers of America Week, again, concluding. Boy, I'll tell you, I don't know what we would do without them. So next time you're in a food store, take a moment to look around at the abundance and the variety and the quality. We need farmers for the future, and FFA, Future Farmers of America, inspire young people to keep up this tradition that is so desperately needed in this country. So thanks again, folks, and congratulations on FFA Week. Well, we have a really interesting show. Uh, this is one of our first truly remote broadcasts because we have gone outside of the, the, the diocesan center. We're talking with Greg Semke. Greg, where are you located right now? Uh, I'm located in the Wausau, Wisconsin area in Rothschild. Okay, and you are sitting in the office of what, what building, what church? Where are you right now? We're at the St. Therese Church in Rothschild. Okay, and you guys have got a good internet connection, which makes life so much more fun. Uh, Eric is there with the setup to get the thing going, and things are rocking and rolling. This is really neat. I want to tell, ask you some questions about yourself so the audience can get a better idea of who you are. Number one, where are you from originally? I've always been in Wisconsin, but uh, I'm originally from Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I went to uh, college in uh, uh, University of Wisconsin Stout in Menominee. And from that graduation, from there, I came to Wausau, Wisconsin, and I've been here since. Okay. My, my first radio job was in Menominee. At, at Q92 was, was, the, was the FM radio station, and I was, I was scared to death. But uh, <laughs> it was a co- great college town. It was a great— And what years yes, were you was. in Milwaukee? I was uh, born in 1952. Mm-hmm. And I was there uh, through 1970. I, I was watched, in— uh, the Milwaukee Brewers or Milwaukee Braves and used to be able to actually go to the stadium and watch the Braves play baseball. Yeah, yeah. That was I, I spent yeah. uh, about two years in Milwaukee. I was at WTMJ, and I was a, the oh. all-night guy in Saturday mornings, and it was a lot of fun. And I had a Green Bay Packer doing my sports for me. So, I mean, it was a hoot. Uh, it was a hoot. Milwaukee is wonderful. Uh, Menominee is wonderful. I, I had great times in both places. I spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. I also was in Marshfield, so I've kind of worked my way across. Mm-hmm. And now here we are back in La Crosse, and uh, you are, what, what are you, are you retired or are you, uh, what do you do? I am a retired. I was in uh, uh, in manufacturing uh, for my entire career. Since retirement, I've been doing things on with, at a charity level with St. Jude Research Hospital for the kids. I've raised money for them, which I continue to do a little bit there. 
But God got in my spirit and says, do something maybe a little bit more local. So I now, I've started my own charity. It's called Christmas in July Charity. And uh, it is 100% uh, devoted to the kids at the Marshfield Children's Hospital in Marshfield. Ah, that's fantastic. Let's, now, let's people are going, to, wait a minute, how, how does this all fit together? Okay, let me piece <laughs> this together. Christmas in July, you are a Harley rider. You are an outdoor fellow. And your, t- your life took a, a very, very strange turn. I don't know how many years ago exactly, but I'm sure you'll tell us. It all started with you being on an all-terrain vehicle. Is that correct? No, that is correct. I was on a ride about 14 years ago, and I was in a major ATV accident. And mm. that accident uh, was, was serious enough that I needed to uh, have a, uh, they actually tried to get the flight for life for me, the helicopter, to take me to the hospital. Uh, but that was you being used at the time. So I had a, I had about a, a couple hour trip uh, in the ambulance from Prentice, Wisconsin, down to Marshfield to the trauma unit. I was in a trauma unit for a couple of weeks. I suffered a major uh, concussion. I broke all my ribs on the right-hand side. I broke my collarbone. I had a pulmonary embolism uh, between the heart and the lung and all kinds of other nasty things uh, that happened to me uh, on the accident. So it's a miracle that I'm here, Jack, because my short-term memory was completely gone. I had none of that. I have no recollection of the accident, and I have absolutely no recollection of the first week in the hospital. You could have come and said hi to me during uh, during that time in the hospital, and I would know who you were, but you could just walk around the, the hall and come right back in, and that would be the first time I saw you that day. So that was the significance of the uh, the concussion that I sustained. But during this during the later half of the second week, the doctor come in and talked to me, and he looked at me. He says, geez, Greg, you don't look as chipper as you normally are. I said, well, I'm now understanding some things that I didn't know before now that my short-term memory is starting to come back a little bit. And he said, well, tell me about that. I said, well, you know, I had, I had absolutely no idea what I put my family through. You know, every day my wife came in, it was, uh, was day one, day two, day three, day four, but as far as I was concerned, it was day one. The second day was day one. The third day was day one for me. And they didn't, they didn't know if, if that, was, that short-term memory was going to come back or not or some of the significance that I had with those injuries. And I said, you know, geez, Doc, you know, I found that out. I now found out I have to take a test before I can go back to work. And I was a plant manager at a facility here in Wausau. And... It was not a physical test. It was a for my mental abilities. And that was a four-hour test that I had to go through. And I says, geez, Doc, I, I didn't know I had to do that. And, geez, I was also trying to get in shape. And, well, you can take all the stuff and, and uh, you know, just flush it right down the drain because it's, it's, just, it's just too much. And he looked at me. He says, geez, Greg. You know, let, let me try to explain this to you. There are things that I can explain to you medically, and then there's things that I cannot explain to you medically. And you, one of the examples that I cannot explain this because you see, let me put it, let me put it very bluntly to you. He says you were supposed to leave the hospital 
but you weren't going to walk out the hospital and you weren't going to be in a wheelchair uh, going out of the hospital. You were supposed to have left the hospital in a body bag. Ouch. Um, yes. You, you know, it, and uh, that was the significance of the, of the severity of the injury. I was Go going to say, uh, the massive trauma. I mean, I, I'm yes. one of these guys that the worst thing that's ever happened to me is a kidney stone. And uh, the idea that you had all your ribs on the one side broken, your, your clavicle broken, an aneurysm thing in your heart. Plus, when you think about how long it takes for a person who breaks their wrist to recover, to get full use of their hand or something like that, uh, you were this times 100 times maybe 300. And, um, I mean, you talk about the term world of hurt. They must have kept you, uh, I mean, they must have kept you on some serious pain medication for a long time. Uh, I, I can't imagine the amount of pain you were going through. Yeah, it was, it was significant. When you injure your ribs, uh, mine was a little bit more than just injured ribs. They were all broken, and it's very difficult to breathe, you know, or and please don't make me laugh because it's just... <laughs> Too painful okay and even eating was it was a chore and trying to talk decently they had me on a, it wasn't a ventilator but it was a tube thing that was with a machine to measure my output and input and um, it had to be at such a level in order for me to sustain be sustained so that yeah, was hooked up to a machine for quite a while for that you're kind of a not, I won't say nonchalant about it, but you've probably told the story a few times. And I think most people sitting here are going, this guy has been through the ringer. I mean, you, you've been through a meat grinder, basically. And then you said that uh, for a long time that you your short-term memory was gone. And uh, mm -hmm. all I could think of was you're saying, you know, when do I take the test to see if I can go back to work? And they said, well, you already took it. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, and you failed. But... Uh, uh. I thought I did. Think, I thought, well, they actually did try to. The June at first week, Jack, they did take me down for that for uh, that type of test, and apparently I had had nothing to do with it. I, I kind of told them I was not, I wasn't going to take the test, et cetera, et cetera, in certain terms that uh, uh, allowed them to say, okay, we're not going to try it with him. And they told me about that two weeks later when I did take the test that I could remember it. They said, oh, you don't remember us, but we remember you. Remember you. <laughs> well, yeah, this this is something that I've heard of in the past, the people who have had brain injuries and things. Uh, you know, their their spouses or the rest of their family, you know, they come in and they have to introduce themselves in some cases. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or, you know, gee, I haven't seen you for a while. I, you know, they actually were there two hours earlier. Who? How many people are in your family? Uh, what's your family situation who were coming well, to see I you? Well, I have... Uh, uh, my wife, of course, her name's Chris, and then I have two daughters, Lisa and Sarah, and uh, that's my immediate family. My mom and dad were, at that time, were from Wapaka, Wisconsin, and and uh, so, but the immediate family is, is right here in Wausau. Mm -hmm. And I'll bet you they were scared to death. I mean, first place, with a massive trauma, that they were going to lose you, or that you would be incapacitated for the rest of your life but then the top of it off the the, the problem with the memory where yes. you know I, I can imagine your wife Chris you know uh, sitting there with horror saying he doesn't he thought I was I, this is the first time I've come to see him today um, yeah that's absolutely true and you know we've talked about it a number of times and you know God gave her the the uh, the strength to do that because once I found out what actually happened because I remember during the 
uh, later uh, during the second week into later moments, I woke up and my memory started to come back and I saw, I looked around the room and I saw candy and I saw flowers and I saw a bunch of cards. And I says, how, how can this be? How, how could this be? I've only been here a day. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And my wife had, had to explain to me, no, this is for the last week and a half. You know, and it's, uh, I says, yeah, I keep forgetting uh, mm -hmm. that it's been that long. And I'll never forget uh, opening my eyes and seeing all those things for me and stuffed animals and all. And, you know, she started crying and I started crying because I could finally start, you know, remembering some things. And so through God's greatness and, and glory, here I am. I'm uh I'm I'm batting uh, 500. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Did did she have to explain to your daughters what was going on? Or let me back me back up on that one. How long did it take for her to get notified what happened, and when did she really realize how bad it was? It wasn't just a rollover or something. Well, the the accident happened in Prentice, Wisconsin, which is oh a couple hundred miles from from the Marshfield Hospital, and I was with eight other people. And Chris's brother, my mother-in-law, was with us. So he called Chris that night and told her that I was on my way in an ambulance going to the Marshfield Hospital and told her to go to the hospital there and wait for my arrival. Mm -hmm. But uh, she tells me now that uh, her brother told her it was really, really bad. And he wasn't sure when my wife says, well, how bad is it? And he went, it's pretty bad. He said that I was out like a light and I was just laying on the, the pavement there. And the, there was a gal in the group that was actually doing, uh, trying to do CPR on me and trying to save my life. Yeah. Well, they may have helped. They may have helped indeed. I'm, I'm just trying to position this because I cannot imagine being a spouse sitting in a waiting room for your in this case, your husband to show up in the ambulance, not knowing what you're going to find. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And she waited there. She, yeah. Uh, she was a lot closer to the hospital than I was. So she was there for quite a bit of time before the ambulance even arrived. Mm. And then when the ambulance uh, arrived, she couldn't see. I mean, I went right into the emergency room and, and uh, they were doing all kinds of things. So she just was there for a long, long time. Just seeing, uh, seeing whether or not uh, how my condition was, you know, to, yeah. uh, to to fully appreciate it. But yeah, she was worried. Jack, you can imagine, uh, I, I, unbelievable, every, unbelievable on her part. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Every time a doctor walks out, your blood pressure goes up. Yes. You know, yes, uh, because yes. it's horrible. And your daughter is probably exactly the same. I'm assuming. I just want to. I'm guessing this that she has a prayer life, and I suspect that she was praying a lot. Yeah, she prayed, uh, I don't know how many rosaries, and to have Mother Mary to intercede, uh, trying to help this situation out, and praying that I would make it, yes. So I, I know she um, she probably wore the beads off one rosary for sure, yes. <laughs> can't, can't go wrong doing that whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and, you know, prayers do work. And obviously there was some reason in God's plan for you to not only you know not die and not only get your memory back but also to physically be able to 
even now you can you, you can get back on a motorcycle, correct? Yes. Now, here's the trick. This is where the fun part begins. <laughs> this is where we start laughing. If somebody was up in your area, man, on a hot summer day, they might see you on your Harley wearing a Santa Claus suit. <laughs> yes. This is not result of a brain injury. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, this is like, I can see someone going down the road going, I don't think I really saw that. <laughs> can you tell us what that was all about? And just, just take it from the very beginning, if you like. Well, let, let me take you back to the hospital. Sure. And when, and when the doctor said I could explain some things medically, he couldn't explain this one. He told me, after he told me about leaving in a body bag, he says, you know, the man upstairs, God, he said no to you. And I don't know why he said no to you, but he did. Because this is one of these things that I medically can't explain it. You're not supposed to be talking to me at this time. So I know that God has playing a big part in your life right now. And he said, you know, he said no to you for some reason. Yeah, apparently, there's something he wants you to do that you haven't done yet. He has plans for you, and you need to find out what those are. So you might want to give that some thought about that. And he then um, got a little, I won't say angry with me, Jack, but he got a little bit disgruntled because I was complaining about things. And he says, you don't understand how fortunate you are to be here. And you need to talk with the Almighty and ask him and help me uh, to understand what am I supposed to be doing. So that conversation changed my life. I left the hospital and trying to get back uh, to normality. And uh, every day I thought about what he was telling me about the plan that God had for me, which I did not understand and comprehend. So I did a lot of praying myself. And I, you know, I always liked helping children out. I, I like playing with children. I, I just, I just have a thing that if, a, if a child is hurting, I want to help that child. And as it turns out, that was what God was calling me to do. So I spent the first couple of years after my injury, and I ran in what they called the Wisconsin Warrior Dash. And that was a 5K run with all kinds of military obstacles. And I ran that because I just wanted to show myself that I could do that after the injury. Within that, there was a icon when I signed up, and it was, be a St. Jude warrior. And I says, hmm, I wonder what that is, because St. Jude is my patron saint. He has helped me uh, intercede for me for many, many things in my life. He's the patron saint of, uh, of miracles, and he's the patron saint of despair and, and distress. And so I was intrigued about be a St. Jude warrior. So I clicked on that icon, and it says, hey, for, uh, I think it was 100 bucks at that time, you could uh, be a St. Jude warrior. You could come to the tent that they had at, at, the, at the run, and you could have some food and some beverages and that kind of stuff. So I signed up, and yep, I'm going to be a St. Jude warrior. Boom. Hit the, hit the icon, and away it went. And during that time, after that, you know, I had these, these thoughts that came through me. And I believe God was working through me again. And what he was kind of telling me is, hey, you can do better than that, $100. <laughs> you can do better than that for these children. Uh, you like to do this, so 
you know, so what I did, I started to do some fundraising for the St. Jude Research Hospital in Tennessee. And what I did was I held a, in the Wasa area, I held what uh, I refer to as a citywide raffle. I would go to companies and businesses, not so much ask for money, but I asked them for uh, a gift or something I could have in a raffle that they could win. And through that, I did that for a number of years, and I was able to raise uh, some money for the St. Jude Research Hospital. And when I was doing the raffles uh, for St. Jude's, people would ask me and say, why, why aren't you doing something more local? You know, you're, talk, you're doing something here for children in Tennessee. What about doing something more local for central Wisconsin? And I said, well, you don't understand because if you, if you raise money for St. Jude, all the research that they do for child life cancer and, and uh, improvements and that they have, it's, it's free to everybody in the world to try to, to help out with, with this cancer. And they said, yeah, yeah, we understand all that. And yes, I'm going to buy your raffles. Yes, I'm going to do that. <laughs> but why don't you just do something more local? Well, I had a friend from St. Jude that I got to know through the Warrior Dash, and he's from Chicago. And I was talking to him one day, and, he, and I said, hey, I want to go visit the hospital. He said, well, you can visit at any time. I said, no, I don't want to just go there. I want to. I want to. I want to do something. I want to see. I want to. I want to be part of something. And he says, "Well, I know that you like playing Santa Claus because I do a little bit here in the Wausau area." And he said, "Why don't we do a Christmas in July in St. Jude Research Hospital in Tennessee?" I said, "What is what is that?" He said, "Well, let me try to explain a little bit to you. Why don't we do something that you could be Santa Claus in July, and you can't do the whole hospital because it's way too big." But we could do a part of the hospital, and you could be Santa Claus. You could visit with the kids, and maybe you could have some toys and that to give them. And I says, you're on. I want to do that. That is, yes, indeed. So he sent me, I think it was like a eight- or nine-page questionnaire about myself, and they were checking out my background and everything else to make sure I was okay to come into the hospital of Santa Claus. And I had a question on one of the things that they had in this application so I called him in Chicago, and I found out that he left the St. Jude organization. He was gone. I've never talked to that individual again, which really kind of bummed me out because, quite honestly, I, I went right down to twos. I, had my, I, I was uh, so optimistic and so looking forward to being able to go to Tennessee to visit those children and put smiles on their faces and, and play Santa Claus. That, uh, that all kind of went, uh, went south on me. And I didn't know anybody else from that organization in St. Jude, so uh, I, I kind of hit what I thought, I hit a brick wall. And it was during those times, here, here's where I think I, I, you know, God talked to me again in his way one night, and, and he says, my thoughts were, hey, dummy, <laughs> you know, uh, don't you remember people saying to you during the raffle, why don't you do something more local? Why don't you do something more local? And why don't you do something more local? Well, how many more hints do you need uh, to do something more local? And from that, the next day, uh, I called the Children's Hospital in Marshfield, and I said to them, hey, did you do a Christmas in July at the, for the kids? And they said, uh, no, we don't. What is that? 
And I says, well, let me tell you how I envision it because I had no idea. I had no idea what this was about because I've never done anything like this. And so I kind of explained it that I could come in in July and visit with the kids and, and give them some toys and some presents and that sort of thing. And uh, they thought that would be a wonderful idea. And when we hung up, uh, Christmas in July, Charity uh, was born. So how did the motorcycles get involved? This is how this happened. I was talking to my neighbor and saying, hey, I'm going to do this thing in Marshfield Children's Hospital. And she says, hey, there's this Harley Davidson right in town here. Why don't you go to them? And Because they did a toy run one time. Maybe, maybe you can join up with them. Since I know you ride a motorcycle, Greg, why don't you, try, why don't you call them and, and talk to them? So make a long story short, we are now partners and we hold this event. This is, um, I'm going to be holding the ninth annual Christmas in July ride this July. And it has grown leaps and bounds. I not only collect toys for the children and that every year I collect maybe five to 6,000 toys for the kids through the charity. And I also do a lot of speaking and uh, I, I write a lot of grants for, for money so that I can fund something that is special for the Children's Hospital. So what are those things? Let me give you a, uh, an example or two. One of the things that we did and raised money for was a, a specialized design movie system for the children's MRI scanner. So when the child has cancer, they need to take a number of MRIs on a periodic basis to see if the cancer is shrinking or did the cancer go elsewhere. And so they take MRIs, and the only way that they know on how to keep a child still for two hours, which is normal for an MRI whole body scan, is by sedation. So they actually give the child drugs so that they're quiet and peaceful in the MRI machine because you cannot move. And if you're, not, if you're a child that is not in the hospital at that particular time, after the MRI, they cannot leave the hospital for eight to 10 hours solely because they have to see if, they, if the child has any side effects from that sedation medication that they took. Well, this movie system is kind of leading edge. I know St. Jude has this at their hospital, but we did not have anything here in central Wisconsin. And the children can pick out any movie they would want to watch in the MRI. They're able to watch a movie it's, it's right in as part of the MRI machine. They have noise-canceling headphones, so they can't hear the magnets. And prior to this time, it was, hey, I'm going to go for MRI and, da, 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 and explain it. They Now the way they do it with the children is saying, hey, we're going to take you to the children's oval movie theater. <laughs> okay? The MRI machine is a movie theater to the kids, and they look forward to going and having an MRI. And, you know, in a theater, hey, you got to be quiet and you got to be still. So the children are told, hey, you're going to be able to watch this movie, but we need to, you need to lay still and you have to be quiet. And I'm telling you, Jack, the sedations that the hospital gives children right now has just plummeted downward. Very, very few sedations take place today. And if they do have to do uh, any sedation whatsoever, it's such a minute amount of medication that, uh, that it really does not impair the child. So what does that mean? They watch the movie, the MRI, 
is completed and they go home. They do not have to stay in the hospital for eight to 10 hours because they did not have to have that sedation drug. It's just a wonderful thing and the parents love it and the kids love the Oval Movie Theater. <laughs> it's just a wonderful thing. We just finished up on, uh, it's called the Kids Getaway Lounge. And it's a little, it's a lounge in the hospital, in the kids hospital, that the kids can go and play activities and they just can be kids. And there's uh, some games and that kind of stuff in this lounge. Well, the hospital asked, the charity asked me if, if I could maybe help out with that. And I said, well, what help do we need to look at? Well, Greg, the, the last time the lounge was worked on was 1997. So it's kind of old and it's carpeted and it's stained. And, you know, so I know that uh, when I go to the hospital and change in my, my Santa Claus suit. I use that room and yeah, it's bad. And doors were coming off the, uh, for storage and uh, chairs were plastic and they're broken. And they, their thing for watching a movie was a old TV set and a VCR, you know? Okay. <laughs> and, and just terrible. So we just, we, it's, as a matter of fact, it is now completed, um, the charity, and we just gutted out that entire lounge. New ceiling, floor, all the walls, everything. We just gutted it, and we put all brand new, neat things in there. Uh, the floor is greens and blues streaking, and we have a graffiti wall that has all positive uh, images on it and, and words. We have a electronic movie screen that comes down with a projector that they can watch any movie they would want to watch. We have a, a, a whole wall of um, built-in cabinets for storage for everything. And there was a little boy that he has cystic fibrosis and he wouldn't even go in that room anymore. And the reason why he wouldn't even go in that room, he says, well, it's okay for my grandma and grandpa, but not for me. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's the feeling. And with the mental crisis that this country is going through right now with kids and suicide, it was really no different being in the hospital because when we had COVID uh, and a child was in the hospital, he could either have mom or dad visit them, not both of them together because that was COVID protocol. He, they were not able to see their brothers, sisters, or anybody else. And uh, once mom or dad were in the room, they could not leave the room because if they did, they would have to leave the hospital. That was just the policy and the protocol at that particular time. Well, here you have a little child in the hospital, can't see mom and dad together, just sitting in there because they can't, they can't go anywhere. That started to work on, you know, the, the mental part. And the mental part is so, so important to the physical healing that it's needed. So now that the COVID is, was relaxing a little bit here in this country, they wanted to get the kids out of those rooms because they were locked up so much and then get them out of those rooms and go to this, this lounge. And a lot of the kids didn't even want to go in that lounge because it was so, so antiquated and so old and ugly. But this little boy says, hey, I'm not going in. And he was in the hospital a couple weeks ago because I got a picture of him. And he's playing ping pong <laughs> in the kids' lounge. So I call him. He was in the hospital. I call him. I says, hey, buddy. <laughs> thought you weren't going to go in the room. He said, hey, this is really, really cool. This is really neat. We love it. 
So that's fantastic. So you know, that's one of the things that we've done. There's a there's a phrase that um, I first heard when I was going through RCIA that for, about children. It's a, something that is a Catholic uh, thing. They call it the age of innocence. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the exact yearly span, but we all know what we're talking about. When kids should be kids. Yes. And in many situations, whether it be a health thing or other, the age of innocence is is not there for them. And they can't just be kids. And so what you're doing, whether these kids are being treated for cancer or whatever their problems that they're having, is you're trying to, to keep that age of innocence available to them, where they can they can look at things and they can be filled with joy. Many, many years ago, I was living in Minneapolis, and back then there was a big department store on the main drag, and they had an entire floor that was really vacant. It was just something they used for storage. And every Christmas, they made a a Christmas wonderland up there. And I walked in one day just to look at it, and I spotted this kid. He probably was in fourth grade, fifth grade, little boy. He had a look of just such wonder on his face and pleasure looking at all these reindeer and stars and twinkling (laughs) lights. And I thought, you know, that's something that you can't bottle. You know, you can't just package it up. You have to do a lot of work to do it. And this is exactly what you're doing. Now, I got a question for you. From the time you were admitted till the time where you were as close to 100% as, as apparently you are, how long did that period of time take? Oh, geez. I mean, it wasn't two months. No, no, no. Probably a year. Uh, yeah, a good year. Right? Probably a year for me to be able to do things that I normally did and feel and feel that I could do that. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, how long did it take for you to do your first adventure in, in helping kids from that point? You know, that first year was just recovery, and I was thinking about what the doctor told me. So I had some things in place thinking about what I could maybe do. And my daughter ran in a very similar event. And I said, I asked her, what was that all about? She said, what's 5K with military obstacles and all? I said, hey, you know, maybe I should try that. And she went, dad, (laughs) (laughs) what's the best way to say it? No, we're not going to visit you in the hospital again. You got it? So I, uh, when I hit the button saying, yes, I'm going to do that, uh, I didn't tell anybody about it. I, mean, I didn't tell you about it, but you know that that visa bill that comes in the mail. <laughs> My wife says, "What is this?" <clears throat> oh, um, well, I'm going to run in this Warrior Dash event. She's no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, um, so I did, and but you know that was during the next the next that second year I was trying to do those types of things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's really good. You know, I, I, I talk to so many different people who've done so many remarkable things. And uh, sometimes I ask the question, and I've asked this uh, even with, with Eric, who's there, and uh, myself. In 1987, I was down in San Antonio, and I was a radio guy, and I wasn't involved with religious stuff too much. And I had to go to, uh, to the first mass that Pope John Paul II did in San Antonio outdoors. I was just a reporter. that wasn't Catholic, wasn't anything. And... Uh, I've asked myself, if you could go back to 1987 and say, if I walked up to me back then and said, by the way, in the year fill in the blank, you'll be working with Catholic radio. I would have said, what the heck are you talking Mm -hmm. about? Yes. At some point earlier in your life, before the accident, if someone had walked up to you and said, Greg, by 2023, you're going to be funding and helping countless number of sick kids all over the world. Uh, what would you have said to them? 
I would have said, I, I don't know what. Uh, Keep what it clean, Greg. Keep it clean. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, you know, uh, my response would have been, there's no way. It was I going to do this. Are you yeah. crazy or what? Because that was not that. No, that was that was a improbability or impossibility that I would have thought about saying, uh, n- n- no, 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 yeah. you know, absolutely not. Right. And as Bishop Callahan and other priests and bishops have said, there are no coincidences. There are God incidences. Now, you said that you do speaking engagements. What uh, what all do you talk about and where do you go? In order for me to raise the amount of money that we're talking about to do these things in the hospital, I need to raise funding for that. Funding comes from speaking engagements that I try to speak to every service organization's uh, that I can. I'm talking about the Lions Club. I'm talking about Qantas Clubs. I'm talking about Knights of Columbus councils, meetings. I'm talking about uh, the Eagles Clubs and other foundations that I can that I can speak with that hopefully would give me some funding that I could then raise to pay for some of these um, innovative uh, type uh, items that I buy for the hospital. And so you do this on a, on a regular basis. And, I do this and, on a regular basis, and the hospital I'm in is in central Wisconsin. Marshville is right in, the, right in the middle of Wisconsin, and this hospital covers all of central and northern Wisconsin, as well as part of the southern part of the UP of Michigan. So if you have a child that has cancer or has some major trauma in northern or central Wisconsin or even part of the that lower part of the UP, uh, they are transferred and flown in or ambulance in to the Marshall Children's Hospital because that is the hospital that is the dedicated hospital in the in the whole region. I, I'm very familiar with that hospital complex. I spent five years working in Marshfield at a radio station there, had a very good time, and lived uh, in uh, in Spencer a few miles away. My wife is from the Owen Withy area, so uh, I spent quite a bit of time right in that neck of the woods, and it is a remarkable complex. It is a major factor. It rivals any other hospital you can think of uh, in terms of what they can do and, and, uh, and what they what they do do. But uh, and then also, you said you would do grant writing. Now, how, how did that grant writing is a specialty? I mean, there's people who go to college to learn how to do grant writing. How, how did you get into doing that? And what exactly is that? Well, let me put it, let me start off saying I'm a, my background is very technical and engineering type of background. And they tell us that engineering people are one of the worst. Uh, writers <laughs> that, uh, you know, th- those two don't go together. Writing or expressing yourself on paper uh, is not what an engineer is, is, uh, is, his skill is at. It is one of those things that I would love at some point in time to run into somebody that likes to do this, that somebody that is good at it, that could help out with that. I haven't run into that individual yet. So I do grant writing myself, and it does does take me uh, quite a while to get through uh, a grant application. So you actually fill in things about the project that you're working on. You have to show a budget. You have to show a capital plan. You got to have to show sustainability, all kinds of things uh, that are on that application. And a lot of it is essay that you need to explain those things. 
So I'm getting a little better at it because I've been through it a number of years now. And I'm, I'm proud to say that there are a number of the foundations that have definitely reciprocated to me and uh, have given me uh, uh, grant money for the children. Without getting too uh, personal, I'm just curious, as to what kind of dollar figures are we talking about over these years? Okay, as I mentioned, I'm in my ninth year, so let's just go through years one through eight. Years one through eight, I have raised uh, for these special projects that we do every year, uh, it's over $300,000 that I was mm -hmm. able to, uh, to raise. And 100%, every penny that comes in for a donation goes for that particular project for that year. Uh, there is no administration fees or there's nothing for me. Everything comes, everything that I have to spend uh, comes out of my own wallet because I am not taking, I will not take any money from the charity for, for my use. It's just a remarkable amount of money. And, and given the fact that you, you started from scratch, uh, <laughs> yes. so you started, actually, usually you started from <clears throat> stitch, from stitch would be probably the, would be the better word. You were stitched <laughs> up. Uh, you know, these are the kind of things that people hear about. And, and the fortunate thing about this show is we get to highlight these things. And, and people like you are, are strong physically, obviously, because you survived that wreck. You're strong mentally because you have been able to not just think about what you'd like to do, but put together a plan. And I'm guessing uh, before and after the wreck, you were strong spiritually. I think you have some kind of a, a feeling that God is looking, is watching your back. And Yeah, uh, yeah he's definitely... Yeah, so many of us have gotten that feeling. And I, I always talk to people, talking about with Lent coming up, that getting involved with community, getting involved with your local church. If you're walking around depressed and feeling how rotten things are, spend time with people who are doing good things. Because exactly. you'll, you'll end up doing exactly. good things. And this is part of what the church is all about. The Diocese of La Crosse is, is uh, in my estimation, just renowned for being charitable, but also people just pitching in constantly. We have to be a little careful, especially with these things going on in Turkey, and, you know, with the, with the earthquakes, that be, that you do not let your heartstrings be tugged and fall for a con artist who contacts you. And so you have, you know, the bona fides, you have the background. There are genuine church-affiliated charities, I will call it that, that the person involved has got an active church life that are doing things and are accountable that, you know, you can you can check them out and see what they're doing. They're not just coming in and, and emailing you saying, we want you to help the folks in Turkey. Give us your credit card number, <laughs> that kind of thing. This exactly. Is, it's very legitimate. And there's a lot of that out there. But for every one of those, there's more and more people who are just picking up and doing things. It takes a lot of time. How much? How many hours a week do you, do you spend doing this? I'll tell you what my wife tells me. <laughs> and she tells others. She says, Greg works on this 364 days a year. He takes Christmas off. <laughs> <laughs> now I notice you, the, the listeners cannot see this we have actually a, a video screen where he gets to see me and I have to make sure a cat doesn't jump on the control board but um, <laughs> I'm working from my home studio uh, you have a, a a windbreaker on and I can see there are some icons there are some things on it I think I even see a little tiny Santa Claus hat is that correct yes now, I, I see Knights I, of Columbus do I see that Knights on there Columbus, yes it's Knights of Columbus in the divine uh, heart of mercy there but I always wear this. It's a, the bottom part is like a, a little smiley face in purple. It's, it's, a, it's like a cross. And I, I stick on the top of that 
uh, Santa Claus cap. The bottom part, the purple with the with the smile, is the Children's Hospital logo from the Marshall Children's Hospital. That's their logo. That's their pin. And then I put my own uh, Santa hat on it, and I wear this. On, it's on all my coats and everywhere I go because people ask me what that's all about, and that gives me the the intro to start talking about what that's all about with helping kids out in the hospital. Right. Now, I, I have only had one very limited experience playing Santa Claus, which I will not get into, but it was in Menominee, <laughs> and, it was, <laughs> and it was delightful. But what do these kids, what reaction do these kids do when you walk in in July with a Santa Claus suit on? When I come in riding on the motorcycle and I have behind me uh, coming into the hospital, uh, about 200 motorcycles that they follow me in. Okay. And these are all riders and and people who want to be on the ride. It takes From Wausau to the Marshall, it's what, 45 miles, something like that. And they go on the ride to see the kids. So the kids just love hearing all of the motorcycles coming in. And we have escorts coming in with the police and the fire department and the end and the kids. It's all for the kids. And Santa Claus comes rolling in on a motorcycle. And all the children that are able to be outside, they're all waiting outside for Santa to come in on that motor with that motorcycle. Uh, they they're on uh, they're in wheelchairs. They're in all kinds of uh, gurney type things. They're we had one one girl this past July actually was in her hospital bed because she was on a ventilator and her wish was to see Santa Claus one last time because huh. she was in the last stages of cancer. Hmm. But she wanted to see Santa one last time. So I have there's all kinds of emotions. Kids just love it. Uh, and and uh, I am so blessed to have the right or the to, to be able to hug all these kids sure. because they all want to say hi to Santa Claus. They want to grab him. They want to say hi. They want to shake his hand. And I have jingle bells with me and they love holding those jingle bells and ringing those things. And I have like a little staff type thing with a, a walking stick and kids have that and they love carrying that around and playing with that and all kinds of things. So when I come into the hospital, we even we've grown to the point that we even have a DJ uh, with loud with, with a speaker system right in the parking lot by the convention center while these kids are outside. And he's playing Christmas music and all kinds of things that we have a lot of fun with the kids outside. And all the writers come in and we have beverages and that for them. But uh, you know what it does? For what the kids and the parents, there's crying going on because my mission is to bring smiles and happiness to children in the hospital and their parents as well. Yeah. Because you see, there's a lot of children and there's a lot of parents that haven't smiled in a long time. Exactly. Because they're worried, they're worried, worried to the point that smiling is not, it doesn't exist. Because their 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 child is going through such traumatic experiences at the hospital. So let me do this, Greg. Uh, we're running. We're not out of time, but we're running. We're getting down there. We managed to fill an hour up with delightfully, and I'm really enjoying it. People probably want contact information, website information, things like that. What's the best way for a person who's listening to this to find out more about what you're doing? 
Okay. I do have a Facebook page. The Facebook page is Christmas in July charity. And uh, you'll be able to see a Santa Claus on a motorcycle and you click on that and you'll be on my Facebook page. I do have a web page and it's Christmas in July charity wi.com. And that'll take you right to my webpage. And I'm also uh, on Instagram with that same Christmas in July charity wi com on uh, Instagram. So you've got it covered, and people can contact you that way. And if they wish to support you, or they have an organization that need that thinks they can lend a hand or give you more product or more gifts or whatever, they can contact you directly through those different places. You know, um, this is we're talking with Greg Semke, and up in the Wausau area, uh, I have to think now that you went from near death and suffering, and I, 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 it must be that. It sounds like you're one of the happiest people I've talked to in a long time. There's a term that they, uh, they somewhere someone coined called a God drunken fool, and that's that's a that's a compliment. Uh, <laughs> that's a big compliment. We need more God drunken fools, I'll tell you, to go around and just praise and and send out smiles and happiness and love and share. And you're doing all of it, Greg. Uh, Greg Semke has been our guest, and I sure appreciate you being on and. As I tell other people, if something big comes along, an event comes along or something, that we do public service announcements. We can get it on the air. If you call me up on a Tuesday, say, Jack, this weekend we're doing this thing. Well, maybe next weekend, the following weekend, uh, I can get it on the air that weekend so we can we can pass the word along. So that's fantastic. Greg, uh, boy, I'll tell you, I, <laughs> it's another one of those shows I'll be telling people about and I'll be uh, posting uh stuff on my own Facebook page for people to say, I like to tell these people I know that this is the kind of stuff I do here and, and check this out. And it always blows them away and they will be blown away when they hear what you have been up to. So Greg, thank you so much for being here. Good. And I guess what I can wish you, I can wish you a Merry Christmas. <laughs> okay. Oh, ho, ho. we will talk to you again. I'm sure. Thank you so much for being here. We'll be right back on Connecting the Diocese. As you heard from Bishop Callahan at the beginning of the show, this weekend is the first weekend of the 40 days of Lent. I am not an expert or a theologian on these matters. I'll let that be up to the bishops and the priests and the deacons out there. But one thing that did surprise me, I had not known, we always hear about giving something up for Lent. It's a penitential season. And the idea is, yes, you can give something up to have a little bit of penitence. Did you know that if you are just absolutely stumped for giving something up for Lent. And maybe you are also a touch inspired by what you just heard from Greg. You can also, instead of giving up something for Lent, you can add something for Lent. One of the most precious commodities that all of us have is not our money in the bank or gold coins or whatever. It is our time. Time is now meted out, scheduled, things going on. You're always so busy. So if you were to carve out some time, to do something special for some organization or someone else or someone in your family on a regular basis during Lent. That would be as big a gift or as big a sacrifice, if you want to think of it that way, as giving something else up for Lent. In my area, there's a chronic need for people to deliver meals on wheels and to check in on people and see how they're doing and just give them a, a smile. I just read that a whole bunch of animals that people adopted for companionship during the two years of the pandemic are now turning them back into the animal shelters because they aren't around and they can't take care of them. Maybe consider adopting a pet who would just be so happy to be back in someone's home. 
Your volunteering doesn't have to be on the kind of scale of what Greg is doing. Every little bit helps, and one great place to find out where help is needed is to go to your local parish and just ask, what can I do to help during these 40 days, and maybe even afterwards as well. So consider adding two for Lent as opposed to giving up for Lent this year. It'll go a long way to help you and help others as well. Jack Sosha here with you in the last few minutes of Connecting the Diocese for this first weekend of Lent. Chris Brunel offers guitar and vocal recordings of Catholic church songs and psalms, primarily those published by Oregon Catholic Press. He's been a music minister in the Catholic Church since he was 10 years old and has been a parish music director, cantor, and guitarist at multiple churches in the Portland, Oregon area for the last 25 years. If you want to hear more of his music, you can simply go to YouTube and just type in Catholic Hymns for Lent, and you'll begin to see lots of pictures of him sitting at a pew with a guitar with a variety of artists that he is using. And again, a very simple acoustic guitar, just good music to listen to for Lent. And also there are links to support his particular music ministry and find out more information about the music, which also is available for purchase. So you can have a listen to that. But right now, let's listen to him here as we close out the show. So I'm going to leave you with one of the selections he is playing and also dedicating this also to all the folks in Ukraine as they have this rather sad anniversary of one year of war. But nonetheless, faith is strong. So we'll catch you next week. Thanks for tuning in on the radio, online, and elsewhere, right here on Connecting the Diocese. guidance to walk with you day